Hello, hello! My name is Bird, and I'm the Ex-Mormon Witch. Welcome to my space where I share my story and explore subjects I'm interested in. Before I get into it today, a big shout out to the person who found me on Instagram the other day and messaged me. Sweetest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Amazing cosmic universe guided timing. Love that so, so much. If you aren't aware yet, I am actually over on Instagram and Twitter. Podcasts are not the best way to get like feedback and communication and collaboration back and forth, but yeah, feel free to hit me up on social media. It's xmormon.witch on Instagram and just xmormonwitch, all one word, on Twitter. But that out of the way, I want to talk today about sex some more. I know, it's a topic. Specifically, I want to delve back into some of the issues, both religiously and sort of wider socially, that I've experienced with slut shaming, specifically purity culture type things, but also my experiences with the opposite of slut shaming. And by the opposite, I don't mean the opposite as in the healthy alternative. I mean the actual polar opposite. I mean the other side of the same coin, which I'm going to refer to as as prude shaming. If you have been or experienced a very, very conservative religious culture in any way at any part of your life, there is this hyperfixation on purity. There is this culture of being sort of anti-sex or anti-sex unless the sex manifests in very, very rigid, very, very specific ways. And religious people seem to believe, they will certainly tell you, that this way of believing, this way of behaving, this thing that outside of those communities we would refer to as slut-shaming, the alternative of that, the reason why you need to be so restrictive is because the alternative what you will see out in the, the quote unquote, the world, which doesn't mean anything. The, the world is something that these very restrictive communities use to indicate an us versus them mentality. It's, it's pointless and useless and I could go off about it, but probably shouldn't for the sake of time. But the world, they will tell you, is going to push sexuality down your throat. They are pushing an agenda of hypersexuality and specifically toxic, exploitative hypersexuality. They will tell you that the only alternative to telling women to cover up is people pushing this agenda of women needing to walk around nude or being shamed for being conservative in the way that they dress or the way that they behave socially or sexually. And I want to talk about my experiences with both of these extremes. I want to talk about how I've experienced them personally, how neither of them are healthy, and how neither of them are true sex positivity. Because true sex positivity, I am a huge fan of. I think it's the, the best way, and clearly I'm biased, so take my opinion with a grain of salt. But I think it's really the best way for us to experience sex and sexuality in a healthy, positive way across the board universally. If there is a universal way to think and talk and do the sex 
healthily, I think genuine sex positivity is the way to go because it's anti-shame. But I want to I want to talk about about how I've experienced the more negative side of things and sort of how that plays into an understanding of what true sex positivity is. Because I've experienced both slut shaming and prude shaming simultaneously at the same point of time in my life. And I wanna talk about how that affected me. And, and full disclosure, as I get into this, this is going to be very focused on my personal experiences or my perceptions of the experiences of people that I really identified with. So mostly cisgender women but I do think that the principles here can definitely be expanded outward. Generally, women or the people that the world society perceives as women in any way do get hit with the heavier brunt of both of these things because misogyny is a thing. <laughs> but, um, but we'll get into it. I, I did kind of already do a whole episode about some of this sex shame stuff. It's my episode, Mormons Suck at Sex, which was a riot to do and basically a rant from beginning to end. There is this big emphasis in the Mormon culture, which I grew up in, but also in the wider Southern Christian culture that I grew up with, because I am from the Deep South, and I did grow up surrounded by very conservative, very Christian people as part of my experience as a homeschool kid, we were part of what I would consider to be a fundamentalist homeschool group. And so there was a lot of sex shaming influences from that quarter as well. And so you get all of these really toxic negative ideas about how the, the only healthy thing to do is to wait for marriage, to do anything sexual. And I do mean anything. There was questions and conversations going around about whether or not it was safe and moral to hug your significant other before marriage, what kinds of hugs were appropriate. I was told that the only appropriate hug for me to give someone of the opposite gender was a sideways hug because you can't like have your chests pushing up against each other because I don't know, boobs, I guess. It's, it's, it brings a lot of weirdness into play. <laughs> Is it a good idea to hold hands? I was definitely pushed to commit to never kissing anyone until marriage. That was supposed to be the ideal that I was supposed to hold on to was I was supposed to never kiss anyone I dated. My first kiss was supposed to be over the altar in the temple. And in retrospect, God, am I grateful I didn't do that because <laughs> it would have been genuinely terrible this idea that you're supposed to just flip a switch to spend your entire teenage and adult life repressing your sexuality and then get married and just flip that switch and suddenly have a healthy sex life is is very destructive and very appalling but this goes beyond behavior and also plays into expression and fashion there's a big emphasis within purity culture on modesty Specifically, Mormons and, and ex-Mormons love this and they'll sort of make it a joke and pass it around back and forth. There is a, a talk, I think it was, from a Mormon leader who informed women that if they walked around with bare shoulders, they were turning themselves into walking pornography. 
which is is quite ludicrous because at that point we're just moving the standard from oh, fairly I can't see thine ankles right to to bare shoulders both of which are ridiculous but this is this is something that was definitely pushed this emphasis on modesty to whatever degree that might be in either of these cultures the mormons have very specific guidelines for modesty that are supposed to help keep you sexually pure. Those are specifically no bare shoulders. You have to have a top with sleeves. It, it can be cap sleeves, but it needs to cover your shoulders. Nothing low cut front or back, nothing sheer, nothing that fits really, really tight, nothing that bears your midriff, and nothing shorter than your knees in terms of shorts and skirts. You're also told not to dress with any extremes in your hairstyle and etc. But keeping to the modesty portion of things, that's what's pushed. Cover it up. Cover yourself up. But then from the fundamentalist Christian side from the homeschool group, there were other influences as well. My mom went through a period of time for about a year where my sisters and I weren't allowed to wear pants. We were only exclusively allowed to wear skirts and dresses because that was modest and it was supposed to help us be more ladylike, more feminine, because that's another emphasis that comes into this whole purity culture thing is this uber emphasis on gender roles specifically. And it's not just being pushed to perform to these standards. There's also a lot of shame, which is where the term slut shaming comes from. There's a lot of shame that's pushed onto anyone who does not conform to these standards. They are ostracized. They're isolated. They need to be separated from the rest of society. They're put up as an example of what not to do. Anything bad that happens to them, to a certain extent, is their fault which is where you get a lot of victim blaming, not just when it comes to something violent and extreme like rape, but smaller, more subtle things as well. Sort of bringing it back to a personal example, a personal experience that I have with this. There was a girl when I was, I was a preteen. My older sister was the same age as this girl and they were teenagers. And I remember, I remember this so clearly. This girl was popular. She was a cheerleader. She was short. She was cute. She was blonde. She was always tan. She was one of those people who flirts very, very easily, very popular with all the boys. She also wore too much makeup and she wore her skirts a little too short to be like the good Mormon girl, you know? She, not, she wasn't bad. She was never doing anything extreme or terrible, but she really towed that line. And I remember once a group of boys were teasing her, picking on her. And at some point they decided to pick her up and throw her physically into the dumpster behind the church. And I remember my older sister, cause they were the same age. And so they had the same sort of group that they were always put with at church. Because when you go to a Mormon church, they do group you very solidly with people your own age. And I remember my sister telling us about this incident. And she was, I think she was kind of horrified and upset. She didn't get along with this girl. Because my older sister is not the pretty popular flirty girl. She never has been. She dealt, dealt with a lot of insecurities and a lot of body image issues that 
having this hyper emphasis on staying pure and not being sexual really didn't help with because she she constantly dressed in super baggy clothes and she was terrified of showing off her body in any way whatsoever but I remember in this instance even though she wasn't really friends with this girl she was upset by this because she has a big big heart and she cares about things she cares about when people are hurt she's very protective and I remember my mom being like, well, yes, that was terrible and it never should have happened. But also responding by looking at my all of us, my sisters and me, and saying, this is what happens. This is what happens when you don't dress and act in a way that demands respect. This is what happens. People pick you up and throw you in the dumpster. And the implication there is, if you look like trash and you act like trash, somebody's going to put you in the trash. And that never sat right with me, but I didn't have the words to push back at that point. So I just remember sort of listening and absorbing that and, and feeling the dissonance of, of this does not seem right, but sort of leaving it alone as you do when you're very, very young. Other instances of people I saw who were ostracized, who were really, really close to me, there was a girl who was my age at church. And this was one of only, I think, two or three black families in our home ward. And I'm from the deep south. There is no shortage of people of color in the geographical region where I live. There's a mixed bag here of all sorts of people. But if you go to a Mormon church, and, and Mormons will tell you that it's not because of racism, but if you go to a Mormon church, the congregations are very, very often predominantly white. Mormonism is a predominantly white religion, especially here in the United States. And there are a lot of reasons for that, and we're not going to get into racism right now, but look into it. It's important. Mormons and, and racism, I mean. But this was this is one of the very few black families in our ward. They were one of those families who is not really well off. You knew that they were from the, the quote unquote wrong side of the tracks when you met them. You knew that. And it was this girl's mother, or not mother, a grandmother. Their grandmother brought them. It was this sweet little old lady who had been coming to church every Sunday without fail for as long as I can remember. Sweet little old black lady and her parcel of grandchildren. And it was always a mixed bag, what children she brought. You never knew how they were related to her or who they belonged to, but they, they came with her with this lovely sister. And this particular girl who was my age was one of them. And she, her attendance at church was off and on. She was never really super comfortable at church. She was never really one of us, one of the group because there was that divide, not just racial, but social from economic class standpoint. And I remember being in, I was in Laurels at the time, which is the last two years that you're in Young Women's, which is the teenage girls organization. So you're there from the age of 12 to 18. And so at the time, 12 and 13 year olds were beehives, 14 year olds and 15 year olds were my maids. 16 and 17 year olds were laurels and I was in laurels. I don't remember if I was 16 or 17. I think I was 17. But I remember being in a 
young women's class with all of the girls my age, and this girl happened to be there. And we were talking about sin, and we were talking about the consequences of sin. And bless her heart, this sweet little young women's teacher asked us to name some of the consequences of sins, of mistakes that we could make. And this lovely black girl says, my baby. And she, she'd been bouncing this, this young one on her lap this whole time. And the assumption that I had sort of been on the impression of was this was just another one of the grandkids. I don't know that any of us had ever made the connection that she had had a baby, that this was her baby specifically, that she was a teenage mom. I remember it hitting me as quite a shock because I had not realized I had not made that connection. And one of the girls in my class was like, no, 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 babies are blessings. And this this girl, this poor teenage mom, who in many ways was wiser and more grown up than any of us because of all the things she had dealt with, was like, yes, but they're also consequences. And I remember telling my mom about this, our, our whole family on the drive home, because I was I was sort of just sort of sharing to sort of process because this was information that I had not been aware of. And I remember my mom getting angry, getting upset and saying that this girl should not be in women's with the rest of us, that she needed to not be there, that I guess there might have been some sort of church policy that if a teenage girl gets pregnant and has a kid, she has to be pulled out of young women's. And she has to be going to church with the women's group, with Relief Society. And I never saw that girl in women's again. She did. I don't know who said something. I think it might have been my mom. But she was never in another young women's class. And I have felt sick to my stomach and outraged ever since. Because I do feel partially responsible for saying something. Because I don't know how much my mom might have had to do with that. With this poor, vulnerable, isolated girl being shut away from her peers. She already had enough problems making friends at church. And the reaction to her getting pregnant and having a kid, making a mistake, but then doing what to Mormons would have been the quote-unquote right thing, not getting an abortion, having the baby, trying to take care of the baby. The reaction to that was you are tainted. You can no longer be around these girls your own age because you might corrupt them. That's actually what I was told as a justification was that she had had experiences that we didn't need to be exposed to which is enraging and it's the worst. And I cannot possibly express the depths of my emotions about how not okay that is. But these were things that I saw and experienced. Offhanded comments, so-and-so wears her clothes too tight, so-and-so doesn't watch her hemlines. Petty, dumb stuff that would make people look down on you, but also really dramatic examples of people being completely cut off and ostracized because they had the audacity to not fit the mold of good enough, according to these sexual standards. And the opposite of this is what I experienced because I was a quote unquote good girl, by which I mean I'm an anxious perfectionist who bent myself over backwards and tied myself into knots to make sure that I was 
always following the rules as well as possible so that I would be good enough. And people like me get put up on a pedestal, on this bright, shiny pedestal of virtue. And I remember being sort of in my faith crisis in college, having a conversation with my mom and her praising me, giving me a glowing commendation because I had made it to my early 20s without breaking the law of chastity, this rule that the Mormons have that says no sex, no sexual experiences, and telling me how proud she was of that because there were so many girls, even in the Mormon church, who never did that. And I remember feeling deeply, hugely uncomfortable because even at the time I understood that I was on that pedestal at the expense of every other woman who hadn't made the same choices as I did. I was on that pedestal of virtue and goodness because I had made one choice and anyone who hadn't made that needed to be punished for it. They deserved to be treated like garbage. And it, it made me sick to think about it. It made me deeply uncomfortable. I didn't want the pedestal. I didn't want to be this shining example of virtue because choosing to not have sex did not make me better than anyone else. But then, then I left the church. And that was when I got to experience the opposite. That's when I got to start experiencing this prude shaming because I, I had a hard time when I first left the church. I lost basically all of my friends. I lost my community. My relationship with my family was very, very strained. And I was having trouble finding my people. And on your journey to find your people, you usually stumble into all the wrong sorts of people. And that's how you figure out who your people are is by interacting with people and realizing that they are not your people. And so I spent a bunch of time with some friends-ish of someone else I knew that I was spending a lot of time with who were very sexually active, very sex positive in the way religious people would think of sex positivity. These particular people were very comfortable with sex. They liked raunchy jokes, very sexual humor. Uh, there was rape jokes that got thrown around because it's all in good fun. A lot of that's what she said type humor. A lot of emphasis on sex and sexuality as being a good thing, a positive thing, which in and of itself is not inherently bad, but did lend itself to prude shaming. And I do think, before I get into this, I do think that this happens for a good reason ish. I think that prude shaming happens in our wider society as a direct response to slut shaming. I think people who are used to being slut shamed feel the need to judge you first before you can judge them. That was very much the impression that I got, that people were uncomfortable with me choosing not to express my sexuality in the same ways that they did because they thought that I was judging them. And so they acted in toxic ways to preemptively judge me, which does not make it okay, does not make it healthy, does not make it a good thing, but is, I think, a source of understanding that we can have for people who do act in these toxic ways. But 
interacting with these people, I figured out pretty quickly that because religion seemed to be the only acceptable reason to say no. I never got any flack for choosing to abstain from sex while I was using the explanation because of my religion. People would hear that and it would be the end of the conversation. But when I no longer had that reason to point to, when I just said, I'm not having sex because this is what I'm choosing to do right now, I got a lot of pushback. I was told that I was stupid, that that was a dumb choice to make. I was told by someone that I needed to quote unquote fix that when they found out that I was still a virgin. I was told once that I needed to pick a random person out at a bar and just go home with them and lie about the fact that I was still a virgin so that they would have sex with me and I could just get it over with because my virginity was a problem that needed to be fixed. And I was, all of this is just infuriating to think about, honestly. I was told things that were were meant to be nice, I think, in response to that. I was told, how is that even possible? That's a question I got asked. I would share that I was still a virgin. I was in my early 20s at this point, uh, probably 23, 24. And I was, I had people look at me with shock and be like, how is that even possible? And I think that people who say that are trying to be nice because the insinuation is like, oh my God, you're so pretty though. You're so great though. Of course, everyone would want to have sex with you. So how is it even possible that you're still a virgin? And, and I want to share with you the response that I wanted to give to these people. Because every time someone said that to me, I really, really, really wanted to be a sarcastic smartass and be like, oh my God, you know, it's just really, really, really hard because you're just walking down the street. It happens all the time every day. You walk down the sidewalk and you just slip on a banana peel and fall into somebody else's genitals. And it happens all the time, but somehow I've managed to keep that from happening to me. So thank you so much for recognizing the effort that that took. I never actually have done that, but I wanted to a lot. <laughs> I don't think it would have been helpful or useful, but it would have been very emotionally satisfying if I had. And the reason that this bothers me so much, all of these things, the reason why it is so problematic is in part because it takes the idea of choice out of the equation. It implies that, again, sex is something that happens to you, especially as a woman, not something that you are an active participant in. It, it assumes that everyone wants to have sex and everyone should be having sex, when the truth is that no is the default sexual state. That word no. Yes is not a default state and then sometimes you opt out of sex and sexuality. No is the default sexual state of every human being. And sometimes, because it's fun, if you want to, you opt into sexuality. But that does not change that your default state is a no. No to sexual contact, no to being sexualized, no to participating in sex. That is your default state of existence. Sex is something you choose to do. Not having sex is an inaction. It's just defaulting to your state of no. 
And regardless of how you specifically, you personally feel about it, just because you have made a choice doesn't mean that everyone else should be making the same choice. A big, big part of genuine sex positivity is about choice. It's about consent. And a big part of consent is comfort and freedom. Different people have different ideas of what they're comfortable with. A sort of different baseline standard is how I think about it. A different baseline of what they're comfortable with in terms of sexual contact. And on one side of that scale, you have people who are very comfortable with casual sex. Their baseline is, I don't know you, I don't really remember what your name is, but you are reasonably attractive, you consent to this interaction, I consent to this interaction, let's have sex. The other side of that scale is, I would like to never have sex under any circumstances ever, please and thank you. And along the way, in the middle, you have all of these other stops, like need to have gone on at least two dates, or need to be in a committed relationship, or need to feel a significant emotional bond with someone, or need to be married in a monogamous Christian marriage. And I personally don't think that any point on this sliding scale is better or worse than another. This isn't about a scale of bad to good. This is just a bunch of differences, a bunch of different places that people can be on this scale of their baseline comfort level with sex. And none of them are bad and none of them are good. What is important is that you know where your baseline comfort level is and you take that and you take that knowledge and you act in a way that is empowering and healthy for you specifically whether that is having casual sex all the time or never having sex at all. Because guess what, believe it or not, asexual people are real and valid. And also, even if you're not asexual, choosing to not have sex is a valid choice for whatever reason you might choose to do that. And I got to experience this shaming towards the idea that I might not choose to have sex and choose to have a lot of sex right away just because I could, just because I was no longer religious. I got to deal with this for a number of years because when I was fresh out of religion, it was really important for me to take a step back and decide what I actually wanted and what I was actually comfortable with. And because I'm the kind of person who does all of my processing mentally, I needed to take the time to think and process my thoughts and emotions before I was willing to experiment and act out and find my boundaries through making mistakes, which is something that we all do. But different people have, again, a different comfort level with how many mistakes they're willing to make along that road versus how much they want to sit back and really think about what they want before they make those choices. Other side effects of this run both directions. If you are choosing not to have sex for whatever reason, I can tell you from personal experience that no one takes your ideas or your feelings or your thoughts about sex seriously. No one takes you seriously about your own sexuality when you are a virgin. Because there is this idea that you have, if you've never had sex before, you are not capable of having an opinion which I think is garbage because I've always been someone with very strong thoughts and feelings and opinions, 
always. This can be about your sexual orientation. People who are told that they can't possibly be asexual because you haven't tried it. I was told that I couldn't possibly know I was bisexual until I had sex with a woman. Because if you haven't tried it, how do you know if you're going to like it? This is garbage. And if you pay attention, you will notice that that same argument is never used towards heterosexual sex. As a woman, I was never told I needed to try sex with a man in order to know whether or not I liked it. Ever. That has never been said to me. But anything else, anything outside of that? Oh my gosh, how do you know if you've never tried it? You don't know what you want. You don't know what you don't want. You haven't tried it. You have to do things to know what you like or what you don't like, which to a certain extent is true. But trust me, you can have a really good idea of what you want and what you don't want. Other toxic ideas that I strongly disagreed with as a virgin that I still disagree with are the ideas that sex takes something from you or creates some sort of unseparable bond between you and the person you have sex with. Also something I strongly disagree with. Relationships create a bond. The first person I ever had sex with, I had a strong bond with, but that's because we had a relationship before we had sex. Sex does not change relationships in my experience or in my personal opinion. It can if you want it to, but that is a choice that you make in how you think about it and how you approach your relationships. Sex does not change you as a person, as an individual. Virginity is a social construct. It doesn't actually exist. But this is all things that I was experiencing at the same time, because in this liminal space where I was choosing not to have sex, but I was also not religious, I was still starting to express my sexuality in ways that I was comfortable with. I started wearing things that were immodest. It took me a while to warm up to that. I actually had a panic attack the first time I tried to leave my apartment and got in public wearing a tank top, a full-blown panic attack. I had to go inside and run cold water off my wrists and change into a t-shirt. It was god-awful. Shame is so toxic. But I was, I was showing my shoulders after a while. I was showing cleavage. I was dressing in ways that were really expressive and to a certain extent more sexual, definitely more revealing. And so I had people who were religious, who I, I knew personally, tell me that I was dressing like a whore, that I looked like a whore. Well, at the exact same time, being told that I was a god-awful, stuck-in-the-mud prude because I wouldn't go out and have sex with just anyone just so I could get my virginity out of the way because it was a problem that needed to be fixed. And I got this from both sides. There was no community for me at that point in my life that was genuinely sex positive, that just wanted to, to look at me and say, whatever you wanna do is great, babe girl. If it makes you happy, if this is working for you, you should be safe, you should be comfortable, you should do what works for you specifically and screw the rest of the world. I didn't have that for several years right after I left religion. Instead, I had two groups on complete opposite ends of the spectrum, both trying to pour their shame down my throat because neither of them agreed with my choices. And it felt a lot at the time like I couldn't win for losing. 
I didn't want to be part of either of these groups. I didn't want to express myself in a way that was hypersexual. I wasn't comfortable with that. But I also didn't want to completely shut my sexuality down and repress it. I wanted to take the time to find myself before I expressed my sexuality, to know what I wanted and to know what I was comfortable with. After two solid decades of internalized homophobia, coming terms with being bisexual was a trip and it took some time and some therapy. And I needed that time, regardless of what anyone wanted to give me. And so I ended up being so incredibly isolated. I, I got lucky at this point in my life, really, that I am my mother's daughter and that makes me stubborn as hell because my reaction to getting all of this pressure from both sides was to dig my heels in and refuse to budge, was to stay in this headspace of I'm going to do what I want and it doesn't matter what you think, to get angry and defensive instead of shattering underneath the weight of that pressure and making choices in either direction that I definitely would have regretted. But not everyone has that. Not everyone has it in them to dig their heels in to say, you know what, if this is what I'm getting from everyone I know, I don't need friends anymore. I went through a three-year period where I had one friend, which even for someone as introverted as I am, who will tell you up and down that I don't need people, that period of time was so devastatingly isolating. It was incredibly painful to live through. And not everyone can tolerate that. Not everyone can survive that. And, you know, people being shitty or people not being shitty, rather, would not have changed my journey in the long run. Not dealing with crappy, terrible Christians would not have made me a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. Not getting slut shamed would not have brought me back to religion. But it probably would have made me stop hating Christians a lot sooner it probably would have made me a lot more open and accepting to the idea that religious people weren't all toxic and horrible if I'd had at least some of them treating me with kindness and compassion, treating other people who made quote unquote worse decisions because they chose to express their sexuality more overtly than I did, like people with love and compassion and understanding. That would have been really, really nice it would have helped keep me from feeling a lot of pain and a lot of anger. Same thing on the other side. It would have been really, really great to have nice, supportive friends immediately after my faith transition instead of having to wait a couple of years before I found the friends that I have now who are genuinely actively supportive of anything that I choose to do whether that is show my shoulders or wear a burlap sack, whatever it happens to be. Honestly, that would have been so, so, so nice and so helpful. So in short, just, just let people exist. Let people live their lives in whatever way works for them, in whatever way makes them comfortable. Know yourself, know what's healthy and safe and good for you. Find what makes you happy in terms of your sexuality and do those things. Do all of those things as much as possible, whether that means sticking to your guns and holding to your boundaries and using your no, owning your no, or whether that means owning your yes 
and saying, these are the things that I want out of my sexuality. These are the connections that I want to have and the experiences that I want to have and owning that. Yes. And finding those experiences and living them to the fullest. Do whatever it is that's going to light you up inside. And if someone wants to give you crap about it, screw, screw those people. They don't matter. They have more problems than you want to or should be dealing with. And they need to deal with that. That should not be something you take on as your problem. Live your best genuinely sex positive life, not by leaning into hypersexuality or repressed sexuality because that's what people want, but because you know what you want and who you are and leaning into that. Find your community of people who are genuinely going to support you in whatever it is that you want to do. Live your best life in every way possible. Be good, my lovelies. I'll talk to you later.